If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, and I will begin reading in verse 7 through verse 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So we're picking up where we left off uh, last week. This phrase, Jesus offering up prayers and supplications, have captured my imagination as I think it did the writer of Hebrews and the hymn that he is likely using to write this. This idea of Jesus offering up these prayers and supplications is the, the heading or the umbrella that he gives to help us understand everything that Jesus did in his ministry to you primarily as your great high priest. And that fascinates me. And I think there is much to be gleaned, much to be mined here. So what we decided to do, or I decided to do, is go through the prayer life of Jesus and ask the question, how is it that Jesus is offering up these prayers and supplications? And what can we see in his prayers? And how does that instruct us as believers to how we ought to think of him and how we ought to think of God and how we ought to follow his example and pray? So all of those things together, that's what we're doing. And this is the second in that objective. The prayers of Jesus, part two, if you will. I don't know how much longer it will take, but there are a lot of big, important prayers that we do still need to get to that we won't have time for today. I'll just say as a side note before we get going, this is the 40th sermon that I've preached here since we came and began serving November of last year. 40 sermons. And with the exception of one of them, they've all been under an hour, and I apologize for that. One. So if you think about it, those of you who have a regular job, or those of you who have had a regular job working 40 hours a week, every week you spend more time with your coworkers than we have spent in this room pouring over God's Word. And it's almost been a year. Every week. And so I bring that up to try and highlight the fact that what we do in this room must be sacred because our schedules and the time commitments that we have outside and just the fact that we're human and we need sleep, it makes this one hour or less that we have in this room very important for your lives. When we gather to feed on the Word of God as a group, it's not a whole lot of time compared to the rest of the things you do, but it must be significant. We put it on Sunday to commemorate the resurrection of Christ, but also to signify its importance, its first importance that we gather as his people to feed on his word. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. 
This can't happen if this is the only time during the week that you let the word of God wash over you. So again, we're investigating Jesus' prayer life today for a couple of reasons. To know what he's meaning by offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To understand the gravity and the beauty and the love that Jesus shows towards you in serving as your high priest. And also to inspire a passion and a heart for prayer for us as a church. So a few highlights from last week. We looked at how Jesus prayed in desolate places. Jesus is the Son of God. He knows the Father. And He alone knows the Father. And He reveals the Father to whomever He chooses, as we're going to see today. So why does He need to go to desolate places? He sanctifies His time with the Lord and goes and finds a place free of distractions. Aside from the normal pace of life, and he prays to his Father. We also saw that Jesus prays for spiritual refreshment. He prays for guidance. He's the Son of God. He's praying for guidance and for the Lord's blessing on his life. We see him praying when he's most busy. And the obligations and needs of others are mounting and even getting more and more intense. He intentionally sets aside time to pray. We see him pray all night before he appoints the apostles, those who will take his message to the world after he is taken in glory. We see him praying for the advance of the gospel. And I say all those things to try and elevate Christ in your minds, that you would see his labors on your behalf, not just his death on the cross, though that is primary, but his labors on your behalf as your great high priest, as he is praying earnestly, offering up these prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, that your heart would be drawn towards Christ. That your heart would be warmed towards Him, seeing how He labors in prayer for you. And so we resume in looking at the life of Jesus, particularly His prayer life. The first place we'll go to where we'll pick up in the timeline, I've tried to arrange these chronologically, is from John 6, verses 10 through 11. If you want to turn there, you can. Uh, I will read it. And then we'll just discuss a few things that I think can be gleaned from this prayer, this instance of Jesus praying. This should be familiar to you. John 6, 10 through 11. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to them to all those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. It's essentially identical to the feeding of the 4,000 detailed in Matthew 15, 32 through 39, and we'll kind of compile these together because it's essentially the same type of prayer. And he has an overarching theme here with the miracles of turning the five loaves and the two fish into enough to feed thousands of people, and that is that the people are seeking the wrong kind of bread. If you read all of John 6, it culminates in this point where he says, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you can have no part in me. Labor not for the bread that perishes, but rather the bread that does not perish. 
He's illustrating that all you guys, all you who are gathering around wanting to make me king because you ate your fill, you don't understand that I am the bread that came down from heaven. So that's his overarching point, but we don't have time to fully explore that today. The uniting theme of both these prayers for this grand miracle display of Christ's power is that he is giving thanks. He's expressing gratitude to the Father, giving thanks to the Father. So when we say a prayer before a meal, we are not saying grace or blessing the food. There is no spiritual like dust, fairy dust that falls from the sky from heaven on the food once you pray for it. It's not lethal before you eat it, you know. What we're doing is giving thanks to God. We're reminding ourselves every time we sit down, we are reminded, one, that we're frail and fragile. We need food three times a day, right? We're not, we're not demigods. We're not superheroes. We need to sit down and consume food. We're inadequate, and so it reminds us of our need for God. And so we express thanks that He has provided for our needs, both physical and spiritual, So what Jesus is doing in this instance, in being our example and praying a prayer of thanks, is an attitude that celebrates the grace of God and underscores the fact that we need that grace. And I would say this is vital to understanding Christ as your great high priest The nature of the covenant that our great high priest mediates for us, between us and God, is a covenant of grace. There is no works whereby you can improve your standing before God. This is what Jesus does and what sets him apart from every other religion is grace. So when we give thanks, when we acknowledge our inadequacy, that we don't have any rights, that we don't have an appeal to God, we are reminding ourselves that we are completely dependent on His grace in the forgiveness of sins. And in the mundane times of life, eating a meal, you must work to remind yourself in that simple act of saying thank you to the Lord, really meaning that, thank you. That you relate to God purely on the basis of His grace. The nature of this covenant that we are in is, and in all of our lives, is not just salvation by grace, it is grace for every part of life. Jesus models this for us in His prayers and invites us to do the same. That we would constantly remind ourselves our dependence on His grace. Also, the next one from Matthew 14, verses 22 through 24. And I'll say before I read this that I, I think what this shows us about Christ as our high priest is that one of His jobs towards us as our high priest is to show us His glory. This is how Matthew records it. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. 
What can we glean from this? I think one thing is to reinforce the need for praying for spiritual renewal. But if you read Mark's account, he says that Jesus begins walking on the water and he meant to pass them by. It's a very fascinating word because it's the same word that the Greek Old Testament uses when God made his glory pass before Moses. When he hid him in the cleft of the rock and passed before him and Moses was able to see the back of God. So Jesus is praying on this mountain. He's letting his disciples go out in the boat, go out into the storm that he knows is going to happen for them to be in this place of utter dependency. And he's praying and then he walks out and he intends to pass by them to show them who he is. This is what Jesus wants to do for you. If you read John 17, which hopefully we'll get to next week, the longest of Jesus' prayers recorded in the Bible, he prays earnestly to the Father that they would see his glory. And this is what's most important for the disciples. It's not necessarily that they reach the other side of land or that they are saved from the storm. It's that in the midst of that storm, in the chaos that was around them, that they would see Jesus standing on top of the water and know for certain he is the Son of God because that's exactly what happens. When he calms the storm and you have the whole situation with Peter coming out, falling in the water, Jesus bringing him back, finally gets in the boat, the storm stops, and they all say, Truly, this one is the Son of God. So what Jesus does for you, what he is working for you on your behalf, is to bring you to a place where you can see his glory. That is his earnest desire for you. So when you pray for yourself, for your friends, for your children... You praying for them that they would just make it through day to day, that they would be healed, that the storms would pass, or that they would see the glory of Jesus, and that they would know for certain that he is, in fact, the Son of God. That whole situation was set up so that the disciples would have this deep understanding and commitment to the reality of Christ's identity. God may, in fact, be bringing the storms into your life, sending you into the peril so that he will have moments to display to you his glory. And then the next prayer of Jesus from John 11, verses 41 through 44. This is from the account of Lazarus and Jesus raising him from the dead. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus is your great high priest. And what gives this lion his teeth is his power over death. 
He tasted death for everyone, as we saw earlier in Hebrews. He shows you that nothing that happens to you is more powerful than he is. And he prays this way. He even says this. He prays out loud, perhaps for many reasons, but he even says out loud the reason that he's praying out loud. To strengthen the faith of those around. So that those around me would know for certain that you have sent me. So in what I'm about to do in raising Lazarus from the dead, I'm praying to you, Father, right now, thanking you that you've heard me so that those listening would know for certain in this miracle that I, in fact, have been sent from God. I am God's sent one. This is so important for our hearts that Jesus is the one we need. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Jesus is your heart's desire, whether you agree with that or not. You have been made for Christ. We are so prone to feel that we need and want something else. But Jesus is God's definitive revelation of himself to you. And he says, Lazarus, come out. He shows his power over death. And this is how Paul wants us to understand this from Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the power of Christ. These are his teeth. He conquered death. Your greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death, they've all been done away with. And he demonstrates that by calling out to Lazarus, come out. This relates to his ministry to us as our great high priest. It should be very clear why. If he does not bring us to God, and conquer our enemies of Satan, sin, and death, then there's no point of being in this covenant, friends. There's no point of his ministry to us as our great high priest if he doesn't deal with our biggest problem. And he does. And he proves it by crying out just with a voice of command, come out. And he will give life to your mortal bodies. He has defeated death and tasted death for everyone. The next one from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Luke 9, 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Before I get to the main point here, did you catch that at the beginning? Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. 
So they're walking. We know this from um, Mark's gospel that they're traveling right now. So they don't have cars and Jesus was poor, so he doesn't have a camel, right? So they're walking from one place to another. The disciples are with him and he's praying alone. What I think you should glean from that, just as an aside, is you should be fervent in prayer even when no one else around you is. She would sense the need for prayer to pray without ceasing. I need to be stirred up often to have a heart for prayer. My faith is often weak, but being around other believers stirs me up to love and good works. We have a Net positive effect on each other as we stir one another up. It's not just one giving and one being built up and then it's just all equal as the same. As we gather together and love one another and speak prayerfully the truth of God's word to one another, we are stirred and built up and it's a net positive effect because the Spirit is at work in that. But I think we can also deduce from this instance that Jesus is likely praying for his disciples' faith. Because what Matthew records in his recollection of this event, he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I think it's likely that he is praying as they're walking. He knows he's about to answer this question, and he knows that this can't be from Peter himself. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's praying for the faith of his disciples, that they would not agree with the crowds that he's just Elijah or some prophet raised from the dead, but they would know that he is, in fact, God's Christ, the anointed one. So what about us? What about how you pray for yourself? When we see outward needs and fires and problems. When we even see things that are really bad, like broken relationships, frustration, disunity, all of these things that cause a heavy burden on our hearts. Father turned against son, son against father, all of the disunity and chaos that sin has brought into our worlds and the sins that happen that rupture our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. Do you pray just against those things themselves? It's kind of like treating the symptom. Jesus says to Peter after this, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One who shares in Peter's confession, you are God's Christ. One who has that deep-seated confidence that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord's chosen one. The gates of hell cannot prevail against you, brothers and sisters. And you may say to me, well... I, I believe that Jesus is God's Christ. I, I've got all of these questions and I don't know what's going on. I'm talking about a deep-seated confidence here. Something that transcends just your regular thoughts of the day. I'll use an example from uh, the movies because I'm, I'm kind of a movie buff. But if you've seen 
Christopher, uh, Christopher Nolan's movie Inception, this is kind of the idea I'm talking about. So they, the, the task in the movie is essentially to get down to the bottom of someone's motivation because they need this really rich and powerful guy to change his mind. It's going to change the trajectory of the whole world. So they go to his immediate thoughts, then they go down a step further, and then they finally get to the basic level of all his thoughts. And there at the core of all of his motivations is his desire to be like his dad. And that's what motivates him. And they change that idea. It's like an invasion into the mind of someone. If someone did that to you, If someone went down to your surface level and then below that and then one level below to the deepest level of your heart and your mind, they should find there Jesus is God's Christ. And the gates of hell, friends, brothers, sisters, will not prevail against you. The storms that comes, the fiery trial that comes will not affect you. You will be saved from the second Death, it will have no power over you. Yes, it will be difficult. Yes, it will press you. Yes, it will make you depend more on him. But if at your heart of hearts you know for certain Jesus is God's Christ, you are immortal in the most important sense. And that's how Jesus is working for you. He's praying to the Father before he asks Peter and his disciples this question. He labors for you. He's interceding for you that your faith would grow and that your faith would be more sure. It's not just up to you to strengthen your faith. He's doing work in your heart to make this the case. The next one that we'll look at is from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Classic Peter, right? And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered, as he entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the second time the voice speaks from heaven. The voice from heaven spoke at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. And then here, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So the whole context of this is that Jesus goes up on this mountain and is praying. And it's getting so late that the disciples fall asleep. 
All four Gospels record this event. Why is it happening? Jesus is praying, likely, so that it will happen. Or at least he is praying to the Father for the same things that we've seen him pray for. And this is how the Father answers his prayers. It's a deep motivation for Jesus, for his disciples to know for certain who he is. And this happens to give the three leaders of the apostles this deep confidence in who Jesus is. So why Moses and Elijah? What's going on here? Is this just some event and it's just because and weird things happen when you're dealing with God? No. Moses represents the law. And Elijah, more than any other prophet, represents the totality of the prophets. And this grand image of what's happening here is that Jesus is the final revelation and the conclusion of all the law and all the prophets. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now He has spoken to us through His Son. And Jesus has been deemed a better housekeeper than even Moses who was faithful, but Jesus mediates a covenant better than Moses. So what's happening for the disciples who were good Jewish men and esteemed Moses and Elijah very, very much, Jesus prays for them that when they see His glory, they would understand that it's not Moses, Elijah, the law and the prophets, and Jesus. It's Jesus. Understand that Jesus, as your great high priest, brings it all together. Knowing him as your great high priest gives sense and connects all the dots in the Bible. The word is what we need. We need to understand what God has been saying to us. And taking this theme of Christ serving as your great high priest brings it all together perfectly. The Bible even says of itself that it's difficult to understand. Some of the common attitudes toward the Bible are, well, it's too difficult to understand. I'll just receive everything by faith and focus on the simple things and get through my life. And then the other side is, ooh, it's really interesting. You've got to chart it all out and you've got to know all these intricacies and it's only saved for a select few. And there are errors on both sides. Jesus, in giving himself to you as your great high priest lets you understand the whole thing all of the law all of the prophets brought together in him as your great high priest and he's praying that his disciples and their followers after i believe would know this you can see this in second peter who was there he actually talks about this event 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with him with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention 
as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the key to the Bible. And anything you would attempt to understand about God is found in Him. The next prayer of Jesus that we'll look at is Luke chapter 10, verses 21 through 24. I'll actually start reading in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not Hear it. This prayer is stunning. You really pay attention to what Jesus... He's rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and expressing praise to God for certain things. Do you understand what he's thanking him for? Do you agree with it? I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. I think Paul gives us a little bit more background and understanding of this. Go to Colossians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The truth about Jesus is not some hidden knowledge that only a few can have access to. It is hidden from the wise and the proud. Do not be wise in your own eyes. The ministry of your great high priest Jesus is to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the understanding of the ones who are confident in the flesh. It's not something that is only open to those who are of noble birth or who have deep understanding or who have degrees. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Christ, our great high priest, is the pride breaker. It's not just that the truth about Jesus just so happens to be seen as folly to the Greeks and as a stumbling stone to the Jews. God wanted to confound the wisdom of the wise and the strength of the strong with the gospel. This is how Isaiah says it in Isaiah 2, 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. If you approach God with pride in your heart, if you approach God with a swagger, a reliance on your own understanding and confidence in the flesh, confidence in your own ability to grasp all these things, you are outside the blessings of the covenant. Because the blessings of the covenant are for those who are like the little children. Unless you make yourselves like these little children, you can have no part in the kingdom. You cannot approach this Lord in pride. Humble yourselves. Do not be confident in your own understanding. Have unshakable confidence in the word. But in your own ability, in your own mind, in your own skills and making it all make sense, don't carry a swagger. Don't approach him with bravado. He has a day set against all that is proud. Become like a child. Do you know what you really need? You need to know and be stunned by the glory of Christ. And you can't see it. You can't appreciate his glory and who he is for what it is if you approach him in pride. We must understand that we are lowly and we are undone. So if you feel this morning lowly and undone and at the end of yourself, that is the perfect place for Christ to reveal himself to you. If you feel at the end of yourself, if you feel you have no ground to stand on, then rejoice. It may very well be God's kindness so that you may appreciate and know this great Christ you have. The next prayer we'll see 
from Luke 11, 1 through 4. This is Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. When the disciples say, teach us to pray, this is the only place we know for certain that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them anything. And I want you to notice before we move on to some implications about Christ's role towards us as our high priest, that there is continuity between the content of the Lord's prayer and everything we've seen so far that Jesus has been praying for us. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And in the other gospels account, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. And we won't spend a ton of time looking at the actual prayer itself. I hope you have it memorized. And if you don't, you should spend all of your idle and or free time this week memorizing the Lord's Prayer. Okay? That's your homework if you don't have this buried in your heart. But notice... It's not just that Jesus as our high priest intercedes for us, right? We looked at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 5 that every high priest, his job is to take the concerns of the people and relay them to God and then take God's answer or his blessing and mercy to the people. He mediates, he, he works on your behalf in relation to God. But it's not just that he prays your concerns to God. He also brings you to God so that you might serve as a priest as well. This is what it means back when we looked at it in Hebrews, that we might draw near. Peter calls us a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. We're just not on the outside of the tent of meeting and Jesus is in there interacting with God on our behalf. He enables us, he teaches us how we might join him in his priestly service and offer acceptable sacrifices to God. It's through him that we draw near to God. And that's what we need, brothers and sisters. He, need, he reveals the Father to you. He tells you the truth about God, but he invites you in. As we're going to see, Lord willing, next week when we look at John 17, I pray that they would be with me to see my glory that I had with you before the world began. And the last prayer we'll look at today is from John 12. John 12, verses 27 through 32. The context here is that Jesus has entered Jerusalem his whole life is a story unfolding, a freight train moving towards Golgotha. He enters Jerusalem. The people have laid down their coats and their palm branches. The same crowds, many of whom will cry out, crucify him, crucify him in just a few days. And then John's gospel records that in the midst of all of those events, some Greeks come seeking Jesus. So all up until this point, if you read all the Gospels, you'll see Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. And, he, and then uh, the, the evangelist himself will say, and he, he escaped from them because his hour had not yet come. 
And then we get to this point. When the Greeks come seeking him, he said, the hour has come. Now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus speaking. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowds that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. This is the third and final time that the voice speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. The only time in the whole New Testament that God audibly speaks. That's stunning. Now the hour has come and he's drawing all people to himself. The point is that he would be lifted up on the cross. There's allusions to the miracle in the desert when the serpent, the bronze serpent, was lifted up on the pole and the people who looked at the serpent would be freed from the poison of the serpent. Jesus is going to be lift up and all, lifted up and all those who look on him and believed in him will be saved. And he will draw all men to himself. So maybe you have said even very recently, maybe today, exactly what Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. O soul, are you weary and troubled? That's many of us. And every religion offers a different solution to the troubled soul. Christianity is not the Buddhist solution that says that you just need to understand that this is part of the process of life. We all got to go through stuff and it hopefully makes us realize that all these things aren't all that important. Life is life. Move on. It's not the Hindu solution. You're not paying off some bad that you have done in your past by the troubledness of soul, by the suffering that we endure so that you might have a better outcome later. It's not the secular solution. Well, you just need to improve your environment. If you just executed better on your plan and your career path and how you do X, Y, and Z, then your life would be better. So pick yourself up, learn from your mistakes, and press on. And it's not the selfish solution. Woe is me. Look at all this suffering, this troubledness of soul. The Christian solution is this. Father, glorify your name. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Deliver me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do you sense that God is working? When, when Paul says, 
He causes all things to work to the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, that he is working in the mundane and the spectacular, in the troubledness of your soul for your good, that you would see the glory of God, and that through your life, God would be glorified. And Jesus doesn't stand in heaven working on our behalf as our great high priest, just telling us we need to let our lives glorify God. He enters the mess and takes on to his own heart troubledness of soul for the glory of the Father. That's the invitation to you, brothers and sisters, that you would not scorn the trouble, but would know that it's an opportunity to glorify the Father. He says, this voice didn't come for my sake. It was for your sake. That Jesus would draw all men to himself. Look on Christ. Believe on him. And be saved from the judgment. There's no middle ground. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You don't just get to be a bystander watching the ruler of this world being cast out. If you're not with Jesus... You're either with him or you're with the ruler of this world. So repent of your rebellion and unbelief and trust in Christ. He is the only one who can take all of this trouble and suffering and what we go through in life and turn it to, towards your good. Otherwise, it's just a warning and a precursor to God's wrath. And he doesn't ask the father to save him from this hour, but he gladly goes. He drank the cup, bore the wrath, and we stand forgiven because of it. Now we can say with our great high priest, Father, glorify your name. Let's pray. Father, I ask that we would... Um, that our hearts would be warmed towards our Savior. That we would not see him as someone far off and unengaged and uninvolved in our lives, someone who's on the sidelines with the stopwatch and the clipboard just waking, waiting for us to mess up. But one who even took onto himself being greatly troubled and distressed so that he could bring us to you, Father. Pray that if there are those in this room who do not know you, Father, in this way, who have not repented of sin and looked on Christ as he was lifted up on the cross and trusted in him, that that would be their testimony today, that they would trust in him, that they would turn away from their rebellion and unbelief and sin and believe on him. pray that we would bless you for all you have done in Christ for us. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.